Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. And I'm Joy. Today we had Sean Thorpe, author of All But Normal, as a guest. And he was with us to share about his life story. The tagline of this story is Life on Victory Road. And growing up, Sean's sort of life was anything but normal. But then, so is his mother. And he talks about how his mother, along with his brother Troy, who actually got to join us that day, and his dad, worked through mental illness and still kept a family that was loving and pursuing God. Yeah, so it was great to have Sean actually in the offices with his brother here talking to us rather than over the phone or through Skype like we normally do. So uh, please enjoy this interview. You can check out his website at pastorshawn.com or get a free chapter sample of All But Normal at Tyndale.com. So we hope you enjoy the interview. Sean, if you could share a little bit about your background. Um, you're currently serving as a pastor in California. Yes. And um, then you could lead into what prompted you to write your story. Okay, so I serve as a senior pastor in Southern California in the LA area at Calvary Community Church. I have been a senior pastor in West Virginia in the state capital of Charleston for a dozen years or so. And uh, uh, in recent years, I started to realize that my story actually, not only did it shape who I was, but the story of my childhood could maybe connect with other people's hearts and they would, they would find my sto- story echoing with them and that that might help them even in their journey. And I have actually been stunned uh, that that's the case. Because I thought, okay, this is my story and I put it on the shelf when I left home at 18 and went off to college. I had to deal with it as a young adult and dealing with my parents and my mom and, and her uh, mental difficulties and things. But I put it on the shelf thinking it shaped me and so people I minister to will feel the impact of it as like a byproduct, but they don't care about the story. So I had never used illustrations mm-hmm. from any of the stories in All But Normal in the pulpit. I've never told people stories. I, if I used anything, I would say I grew up in a difficult home with a mom with physical, mental, and emotional challenges because of a brain injury and an accident, and I go on, and that was mm-hmm. it. And so when I started to get to know Johnny Erickson Tata, um, I shared a little of my story, and she said, you, you, you need to tell your story to some of our supporters, because we always hear from parents of children of special needs, but we don't hear about from the child's mm. perspective with the parents of special needs. Mm. And then I shared it with them, and Max Ocato was in the front row, and he came to me and said, hey, your story has to be told. Either you tell it or I tell it. Mm. I know which book I, I'm thinking about, this will work in that I'm preparing. And I said, which would you do? He said, you need to write your own story. Mm-hmm. And that's when then I partnered up with my co-writer, Joel Kilpatrick, who does this for a living and uh, lives right in our area and did a great job helping put it together. And then uh, Tyndale uh, saw the value of it and acquired it. And uh, if I ever write another book, I don't know if it'll, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'll do to work with another publisher. I so enjoyed working with Tyndale. <laughs> oh, blessings. Yeah, it's been a wonderful, we have such a pleasure of like looking through all the books and hearing the stories. And, you know, Sean, as you're saying, to you know encapsulate your whole childhood i'm sure it was difficult not only thematically but also to choose what stories to highlight because there are probably so many and you wanted to pull out cohesive themes so how'd you go about doing that well i think first thing for me is it was hard to recognize which stories were important to other people or would have an impact because when you live it you know part of the story of all but normal is when i'm a little kid you don't know any different it's all normal then you get to be about eight or nine, you start realizing, wait a minute, other people's homes aren't this messy and their moms don't scream and throw things. And uh, this, wait, this is, 
And then by the time I'm an early teenager, I'm embarrassed by it and I want to live somewhere else. And then by my late teens and into college, I started realizing, wait, uh, everybody's got brokenness. All these people's perfect homes I wanted to live in, turned out they all had issues and problems, not the same. But so to, to me, when I think of the stories of my life, the ones that are important to me aren't necessarily always the ones that ring with other people or God uses. So having Joel as a co-writer helping me, a lot of the editors, quite frankly, here, you know, working with the, the senior editor and then the, the managing editor, uh, both uh, Carol and Jonathan, they did a great job. Even there were stories that they said, you know, we want to take this one and remove it because it's just not going to tell the, the arc of the story as well, whereas we're going to take this story and build on it a little more. And, mm -hmm. you know, when they were doing that, I was kind of, I don't know. Yeah. And now as I read it, you know, and read it over many times, and I've been listening to it in the, the audio version, uh, recently just to make sure I know what's in it and everything I've been saying wow those are, those are good stories so they're the ones that actually connect to people's hearts I think that's what it came to not just that were important to me or shaped me but the ones that seem to ring with other people mm -hmm. um, you mentioned earlier that um, you never told your story before you left it out as illustrations was that a conscious thing you did or was it just kind of a natural or unconscious thing so I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that I, feeling. I think it was, it, wa it wasn't conscious in the sense that it was so hard or I was bitter or angry at my past or, you know, it was more like, okay, that shaped who I was, but it doesn't matter to you. Right. It doesn't matter to you. It doesn't matter to those people or to this congregation. Um, and so it was kind of a subconscious thing. And yet it, it, I don't know why it was a, a real decision. I think, you know, my brother Troy is here with us and I think, I think he's kind of done the same thing. We just sort of moved on and said it shaped us, but now I've taken it off the shelf and opened it up, and God is using it. I mean, just was just relating to him, even talking to someone the other night uh, who I know and uh, don't know well, but they really opened up about, I just finished your book, I need to talk to you. And we sat down at a dining room table, and they just went on about their upbringing. And so, so now it's conscious that I'm sharing it, even though I don't think it was that I wasn't sharing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Troy, have you been able to probably have conversations with Sean and kind of recall some of the memories? You know, sometimes it's great to have a sibling who understands because really no one fully gets what goes on in any of our families except the ones who are actually in it. So how's that been as a process, you know, for you as a brother talking with Sean? I think it's been good, um, and, and you're right. I think that there are three people that know really the intimate details of the stories, Sean, myself, and, and our dad. And, and I think it's been good for, for all three of us to be able to kind of just reprocess, if you will, uh, the things that we experienced growing up. And then for me, even kind of being able to zoom out to kind of 30,000-foot view and, and see God's hand mm -hmm. in all of it. Uh, has been a good thing too because it, it's a God thing it's not a Sean thing it's not a me thing it, it, it's a God thing and so I think it's been you could say healthy or cathartic but I think it's just been really good to see that this is a God story mm -hmm. absolutely and you know Sean you're talking about how you use you've chosen stories within the book to resonate with people and you have a very privileged position of being a senior pastor of a church to where you can be a culture changer. So you can develop a culture to where it is welcoming to the marginalized. So mm -hmm. how do you do that? You know, I was looking at some of your core values and right. two of them towards the end are having um, 
let's say, a compassionate and attitude and authentic in relationships. Yeah. Well, one of the ways in which we, and the other thing for us where I pastor is we are truly a suburban area. So we live in suburbia, and it's upper, upper class suburbia. We live in, our, the zip codes around our church are some of the richest zip codes in America. So we don't have a lot of homeless. We don't have a lot of poverty within a half hour of us. And so, you know, when you, most, many churches can say we're going to reach uh, the homeless right around us, so we're gonna, which, which we do feed people in our building every Tuesday night, and they go to other churches the other nights, and then they stay in our building during the cold winters of Southern California. <laughs> from November 1st to March 1st, they yeah. can stay overnight in our building on Tuesday nights. So we do things like that, but, but we started thinking, how, what, what, what do the marginalized look like hmm. in a suburban upper class area? And special needs became a major heartbeat for us. We started to say, and we're, and we're in an area that's affected by Hollywood, so image is very important, you know, and a lot of status and, uh, you know, how you present yourselves. And sometimes people, even how they function at church, people who are famous will, will try to um, tailor how they function at church that it doesn't affect their public image. And so what we found was uh, special needs, you know, children born with autism, Down syndrome, people in wheelchairs, uh, all the different challenges of special needs, it knows no socioeconomic boundaries. Mm. And so we could be compassionate and attitude, and they are in some of the wealthiest gated communities in Southern California, the, the people with special needs. And so we began to really embrace that, and it's growing in our church. We, we now are able to, when we have high school camp, middle school camp, VBS, taking mm -hmm. hundreds of kids, we have buddies who go, and so people with special needs can go and be a part of the main activity, you know, mainline, not off to their own, um, activities and things and that has really I mean surpri I'm surprised how much God has used that to shape the heart of our church and to shape its attitude and so that we'll, when we hosted for the first time a big um, prom for four area high school special needs prom and I talked about the number of kids who showed up and the things that people donated people applauded and cheered in each service and but they wouldn't have necessarily have done that five or six years ago they would have you know applauded it was nice but now we've embraced that and that has helped us then embrace families of all kinds of brokenness and difficulty, not just special needs. Mm, that is so neat. It really is amazing when God you know, allows our difficult stories to transform others. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that's one of the ways he shows redemption here on earth. Because, you know, we'll all be redeemed when we meet him face to face. But to have tangible redemption out of the difficulty and the tragedy of our past, I really... Definitely. I, I think in, in what's happened for me in the, uh, you know, I've worked on this book for almost four years, three and a wow. half years, probably again with Joel's great skill as, as a co-writer, we probably could have done it in six months, but I would get, you know, a paragraph or two that he'd written, I'd write some things, he'd look at that, we'd look back, and I would, I would look at it on the pages as it would come back, and I'd sometimes have to set it aside, and I'd think, I'll just let it sit there for a week, but it would probably be like two months. And Joel, and then when we were working with the editors here, somebody at Tyndale would say, hey, uh, we need you to reply. <laughs> and I would look at it and go, do I, am I really going to tell this stuff to the world? Mm -hmm. am, I, am I really going to let them know uh, about my life? But at the same time, um, what, what I learned in that process was that I would say in these three and a half years, I took that story off the shelf, and God really did redeem it mm -hmm. for my good, the good of others, and his glory. That's how I, that's how I kind of summarize this journey is that God redeemed the wounds of my past and my story for my good, and I've grown through it, 
others are being blessed and they're seeing God's grace in my story and it's helping them link God's grace to their story and then God's being glorified in it. And mm -hmm. so truly he does redeem yeah. broken things uh, and, and my story is one of those. Yes, but I think it takes a lot of courage to do that because this isn't easy. Like you said, you know, those pauses that time to say, yes, I'm committed to this. You can yeah. take that story and run with it. It's, it's very vulnerable and exposing. I would hold my hand above the, the yeah. enter button where I'm about to <laughs> click on, you know, send or whatever. And I would, you know, and, and it'd hover over the thing. Am I really going to do this? Because when you're vulnerable in telling your own story, your own memoir, you're not only vulnerable for yourself, but I bring my brother in, bring my dad in, I bring my mom in, I bring, every, you know, so my being vulnerable makes them vulnerable. And so then you want to know, I want to respect them too, while being honest. And that, that was difficult. But again, a great co-writer and a great team here at Tyndale helped me, I think, really love on my parents and love on my brother and not dishonor them while at the same time being honest. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and God did a lot in my heart in helping me do that too. So that, yeah. that's important. It is. Yeah. Um, we're like 10, 11 minutes in. Um, we've kind of been talking around uh, story. the story yeah. of the book. Uh, for people who haven't, uh, aren't familiar with the book or haven't clicked on the, the link yet uh, to read about it. Are there any left that haven't? Uh, I think by now, <laughs> everyone on the planet has. We're trying to get as many posts as possible. Um, can you just give like a quick um, overview of the... The heart of all but the normal. The heart of it, yeah. Yeah, all, all but normal is my story of growing up in a home that was deeply impacted and affected and shaped by a mother with uh, physical, mental, emotional challenges uh, because of an accident she suffered, suffered at 14. She was in a car accident, no broken bones, no major lacerations, but she hit her head on the dashboard and was knocked unconscious at the age of 14 so that she was in a coma, asleep, didn't wake up from that for three months. And while she's in that coma, uh, she turns 15. And when she wakes up, she has to learn to talk, walk, swallow, everything all over again. And it was a very difficult journey. In 1962, we didn't have the occupational physical therapy that we have today. And so she was left with uh, her fine motor skills were very robotic and, and she couldn't respond quickly. She had balance issues and she walked with a stiff gait, if you will, and in her stride. And um, those physical limitations brought a lot of difficulty. She couldn't drive, she couldn't really work. Um, and then uh, it also changed her personality through the, the brain injury that occurred in the accident. And so that brought a lot of emotional, recalling one moment, throwing things, screaming over something so simple as maybe the cat knocked something off of something and she'd just go crazy with uh, expletives and emotions. And then all of a sudden go back to calm and say, so how was school today? You know, and, and you grew up in that mm -hmm. and it really is an all but normal life. And, spent the bulk of my childhood years, the you know, 98% of them on, in a house on a cinder road in northern Indiana in a factory worker home. My dad was a blue collar factory worker, mom didn't work, and that house was located at about 900 square foot home on a little dead end street called Victory Road. Mm -hmm. Three houses on it. And uh, so it's the story of my growing up in that setting and how God shaped in me a heart for other people and even a pastor's heart and uh, through all those challenges. Mm -hmm. And how did your dad fit into this story? You know, you write about your whole family, you know. Right. So. so, well, one of the interesting things that I didn't say just a moment ago in telling the story is that my mom was 14, a freshman in high school. Dad was a senior in high school, and they 
uh, were just kind of in, he invited her to a dance and thought, we ought to hang out with her if you're going to go to a dance in a month. So they're hanging out a little bit more, and she asks her parents, can John drive me to the department store? And um, they give, reluctantly say, okay, go, it's only 10 minutes away. Well, that's when the accident occurs. My dad, uh, as a senior in high school, pulls in front of a car, doesn't see an oncoming car, and he is the reason that, you know, he's at fault for the accident. That becomes a major part of the story. Because then he wrestles with, while she's in the coma, what's my responsibility? He graduates from high school while she's in the coma. Mm. And so then he grapples with, do I love this girl? Now do I, have to, do I need to marry her? And he wrestles, well, goes off into the military and discerns, yeah, I, I love her and I mm. care for her. And not just because she's, she's been marred by this accident, but I love her. And they get married and have two sons. I'm the oldest, Troy's mm. the youngest. And uh, mm. dad, throughout then, uh, their marriage, he has to deal with these emotional outbursts. And sometimes he would add gasoline to the fire and his emotions would get going and she'd throw something at him and he'd throw something back. And so it was a chaotic, our home was filthy because dad didn't have time to clean. We were too lazy to clean. I think his sons, I don't know. <laughs> mom, mom physically couldn't do it. And so, I mean, we would wash dishes to eat rather than after we ate. Mm. And so it was a very chaotic, difficult but my dad was very committed to uh, raising Troy and I in the Lord, uh, walking with the Lord, aiming us toward life with Jesus, and mom was too, and in all of that, he remained faithful to her, uh, tempting to love her, it wasn't always perfect, there's a lot in the story about my dad's own flaws and brokenness, and, and, uh, and yet it talks about his commitment to loving his wife, even in the most difficult times. Yes. So that's kind of how he fits in. We have a discussion at the end of the book, and for those, who maybe haven't read it or are reading it, when you get to the end, there's about a three-page discussion we have late in the book, and I won't give it all away, the setting, because it tells some of the story if I give it away, but we have a conversation where he sits down on the end of a bed where I'm visiting uh, back home, and I'm a you know, 33, 34-year-old young man, and he says, uh, you want to know if I love your mother or if I got into this out of guilt? I looked at him and said, no, I really don't want to know. He said, well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and so I talk about that conversation. And a lot of people tell me that's a turning point in the book for them, mm. where my dad kind of becomes the hero of the story. Mm. Even though it's, you know, in my mind, it was supposed to be mom was the hero. And not that right. he was a bad guy, but just it no. highlighted her life. But a lot of people were, were, were doing some book signings and he's coming with us. And I've had people email me and say, your dad's coming? I want to meet that guy. Oh, yes. So they're coming. They don't care about the book or meeting me. They want to meet, <laughs> they want to meet this guy because he's quite a character in the book, too. He's a, he's a do-it-himself uh, kind of guy, and he would fix things around the house in some very unique ways. And I tell some of those stories. So people tell me, your dad's part of the story. made me laugh a lot. <laughs> reminded me of my dad or my uncle or my husband. And So he's a critical part of the story uh, and, and how it's shaped and how God used him in our lives, even in his own failures and brokenness. Mm -hmm. Where is he now? He is still in northern Indiana, mm -hmm. and uh, he uh, retired a few years ago, and because he's, I'm, I'm uh, turning 50 this year, and he's 71, or turned 72. Mm -hmm. He's just, he was 21 when I was born. Mom was 19, so they were young, wow. very young. And there, she was only just about five years removed from the accident and had wow. to do all that recovery without a lot of physical therapy. So mm. they started out life fast and with a lot of complexity. And, yes. and we experienced that together as a family. And that's what All Normal was about. And I think it's a, it's a great reminder 
of God's grace. And my prayer for the book has been, and God's answering that prayer, is people are reading it. And I'm loving people emailing me, becoming my Facebook friends, tweeting me. They go to allbutnormal.com and make comments. And I mean, uh, my prayer was that God would use All But Normal Life on Victory Road, my story, my memoir, to bring hope and healing to other people's lives and to remind people of God's amazing grace in their own story. And that's what people are saying to me. It's not just about learning my story, but uh, I had a 93-year-old woman come to me and say, I put my story on the shelf years ago. And reading your book made me take it off the shelf. My dad left her home when I was 10. We lived in a boarding home, she said. It was a difficult experience. She got teary and she said, thank you. I had a man who said, I left high school 45 years ago. We celebrated our 45th high school reunion this summer. He said, I became successful in business and never had to read a book again, so I never did. Read the sports pages and that was it. <laughs> and he said, my wife said, you gotta read this on vacation. So I sat down and actually read it. He said, I wanna shake your hand. He said, congratulations, you're the only author I've read since <laughs> high school. And he, and he got teary and he mm -hmm. said, but I needed it because it's hard for me to look at my family and my upbringing and see God's hand in it. But I'm seeing God's hand in my own story as I saw his hand in your story. So God's using it. And that excites me. Because that's, you know, to share your story this way, you want God to use it to bring hope and healing to other people. Not just to have people say, oh, that's a nice story. Or isn't that a nice, uh, it doesn't really end with a little bow around it either. <laughs> uh, so none of our lives really do. And there's, we're all born into abnormal circumstances. So that God uses it is humbling and amazing to me. Yes, absolutely. And how, one of the things I've been curious about is so often our family can give us a vision of God and kind of help shape our worldview. And I'm sure that some of your upbringing... We had, we had a shaped worldview. Yeah, <laughs> made you think like, who is this God or God, you're this one way with me or my family, but I've, I've been told other things, I read it in your words. So how have you come to wrestle with some of the questions about who God is? Character. Well, one of the things that, you know, in our home, there's a dichotomy to this home. So my, my mother, on one hand, has all these emotional difficulties. There were times she'd try to jump out of the car mm. at high rates of speed, and we're young kids, and dad's saying, hold her in, boys. And we're in the back seat, pinning our mother's shoulders against the seat so she doesn't mm. get out and kill herself. Um, she's throwing things at the table, all kinds of chaos. We tell the stories in the book um, of her difficulties and outbursts. So you got that side which seems like, wow, that's, that's, that's way out of control. That just can't be Christian, all the cussing and screaming and threats of death and all these things. On the other side, we're going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, we're there for Awana and Sunday school and youth group and, and uh, mom's teaching Sunday school and in the choir and dad's working with the youth and uh, we're very active in the church and most of our church friends from Twin Branch Bible Church in Mishawaka, Indiana, where we grew up, knew very little of this. My aunts were stunned when they read the book, her sisters, because they knew very little of this uh, that went on in our home. But what, um, but what, what that dichotomy did, though, was some people say, well, with all that, wouldn't you turn your back on God? And you, or you have a bad view of God, like a bad worldview of, of who God is. But in reality, in the middle of that, both my mom and dad were striving to know, love, and serve Jesus, even in their brokenness, even in the pain. And um, I started to realize as I wrote the book that I don't look back. I don't think Troy does either because neither of us ever turned our back on Jesus. We both went to Christian colleges. We've both been involved in ministry, although he's also worked in the marketplace for a number of years. Um, we, we don't look at the m individual moments, the scary, and there's some deep, scary moments in this book 
of our lives, and we don't look at the collection of moments over time as much as we look at the trajectory of our parents' hearts. Mm -hmm. So my mom would be a crazy morning getting dad off to work, just crazy, almost killing him kinds of stuff going on. And he gets his lunch pail and goes off to the factory. Mom would sit down at the end of the table, start reading her Bible, mm. and write down a little prayer list. It took her a long time to write. We beg her not to write her whole name on a permission slip because it took her so long to write her name <laughs> from her physical limitations. But she would sit there and spend time with God. Mm. And so it wasn't the moments or the crazy moments of all the emotional outbursts and the mental illness uh, things that, that emerged, but it was the trajectory. And then my dad, he, he had a lot of simple things about him and, and was a very wise man in many ways. And he, he trying to correct mom and things got in and Attic said he too had his own issues and that's documented or talked about in the book. But dad would take a little, our daily bread, which is a little devotional that's been around for decades. Mm -hmm. And he'd wrap it in the, the thermos area of his lunch pail with a little clip of the thermos. And so his daily breads would always be, you'd see dad's old daily bread laying there on the table and be curled <laughs> like the thermos. <laughs> and he would at lunch spend a little time reading that little devotional and that scripture and pray. And so I think for me, my world was shaped, view was shaped no matter what goes on, or my view of God, I should say, no matter what goes on in your life, good, bad, or ugly, keep your eyes on Jesus. Mm. And it, life does stink at times, and life can be overwhelming, and you can't control all the circumstances. We couldn't control the brain injury mom had. Um, and she couldn't control some of the things that, that came from that. But we could keep our eyes on Jesus. And my parents taught me that in the middle of that. And so I think they really did give me a good view of God. And I meet some people who maybe grew up in more picture-perfect Christian homes. And when some bad things come, uh, difficulties of life, uh, cancer, a miscarriage, uh, uh, marriage difficulties, whatever it might be, they just collapse because this idealistic picture of God um, doesn't fit into their reality where we learn whatever your reality is keep your eyes on the God who is and put your hope in him hmm. that's beautiful that's so well said um, I have one final question because we're getting to the end of our okay. time here we're doing this okay is more, yeah you're doing so. great this is more of a writing question oh. um, so we Kindle's done a lot of books by pastors mm -hmm. Um, but yours is unique because it's a memoir. What made you decide, rather than what somebody else might do, another pastor might take the themes or topics in the book and write it as more, more of an extended sermon and use the stories as illustrations, why did you decide to go more towards the memoir side? The Tyndale editor. <laughs> Actually, it was a little blend. I, I originally, the book originally was my story with the man in John 9, the blind man, his story being told parallel. Okay. And as it was being written, I was going, no, I'm uncomfortable with this. I mean, people are going back and forth from story to story. But the pastor in me, you, you, you said it very well, the pastor in me wanted to have three points in a poem. You know, I, I wanted to talk about scripture. I wanted to, because, again, I shortchanged how powerful our stories are. I preached a message a few weeks ago when the book was launched at our church just to say, you know, I'm humbled by this, that God can use it. And the title of the message was, Our Stories Matter. Mm. Our Stories Matter. Uh, because God, and my, my whole theme of that message was, our stories matter because God wants to redeem them for our good, the good of others, and his glory. And, and so for me, originally I was trying to do that. Then when we said, okay, we're working with the editors and my co-writer, we said, okay, that John 9 layer is just complicating the story. The story itself is so powerful. Mm -hmm. 
we pulled that off, and then I thought, okay, I need to have a teaching chapter at the end. How about an epilogue? And I wrote it like three times, and I was, I was submitting it, and then again, the editors here, my co-writer would say, read that last chapter again, Sean. Then read your epilogue. And I'd say, okay. Uh, and I'd say, oh, it doesn't need the epilogue. And so then when it was all done, and I read it completely through after it had been edited many times, and again, recently I listened to the audio just to hear how my own voice reading it sounded, and I, I was struck with, wow, God wove something, God did something here, beyond me, beyond my ability, that great talent from Tyndale and from, from uh, my co-writer, Joel Kilpatrick. But yeah, I started, you're, you're right, the impulse of a pastor is, so I, I say to people all the time when they talk to me, they'll say, oh, I want to get your book, because you know, what's, its, what's its theme? I'll say, you know, this isn't a teaching book. <laughs> Normally a pastor will write a Christian living teaching book. This is my story, and uh, I probably never write another thing like this, because hopefully my life doesn't get worse than this, so they're book two or whatever, but, but, but I, you know, and now I'm looking at some themes for some books that would deal with, I'm, now I'm sensing people want to know, okay, what was your journey like, and what can I learn from your journey in how you processed your story, and you saw God redeem it, so I'm actually working on some things related to that, uh, but I have been impressed that God can use our stories apart from uh, thinking I have to teach something. So you're right, I, I went that route and then, <laughs> and then was coached the other way and then I'm celebrating now mm. that it, the story itself has, has power in God's hands. Mm. Amen. Cool. Mm. I think we're right at the end here. Any final thoughts? I know you said people can go to your website yeah. or mm -hmm. find you on social media. Uh, yeah, and I would also say, you know, I know that when people are listening and some people read the book are people who have They'll say, i got to get that book because I have some things in my childhood. I've dealt with people come to me who said I had an alcoholic father. I had a mother with mental illness. Uh, my parents went through a bitter divorce. Or they'll say, I went through a bitter divorce as a young adult, and I'm, I'm trying to grapple with those wounds. I want to read your story. And, and I would say to those folks that as, as you read my story, All But Normal, uh, my prayer is that you will see God's grace, not only in my life, but it will splash over and spill over into your story and help you uh, see your own story from a different light because... Uh, no matter what we've gone through, there is a God who we can put our trust in and his son Christ, Jesus Christ, who loved us and died for us. And so my, my, my passion uh, for the book to be out is that people would be able to find hope and healing mm -hmm. and discover God's grace afresh in, in reading my story. Mm. Great. Thank you, Sean. We really appreciate you being with us. It's really it's a pleasure to hear from the people who write these stories that we're surrounded with daily, and there's just treasures beyond what we can discover. So, and Troy, thank you for being here as well. It's yeah, really sure. neat to have the both of you. And it's available everywhere where books are sold. Yeah. That's so right. Go check it out. Yep, pick up a copy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you.